Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the show, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. And I'm glad that you decided to join for today's episode, because today we're going to be focusing on what I think is truly the real secret to happiness. First, learning how to like. This means getting better at enjoying the truly enjoyable parts of life, becoming more aware of the full stream of our experience without getting so wrapped up in the more difficult parts of it, and learning how to deliberately find more things in life to really authentically enjoy. And then second, relaxing around wanting. This is craving in the Buddhist tradition and includes everything from excessive comparison and envy, jealousy, and addiction to much more everyday experiences like something that I've been dealing with for a long time, wanting to be seen a certain way by other people. Today, we're going to be focusing on how to like without getting so wrapped up in wanting. And I'm joined by somebody who's made that a major focus of his career, clinical psychologist, Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm doing great and thoroughly liking our topic. Yeah, same, very much. I was really excited for this one. A third thing to maybe just name at the beginning here that I think is essential for everyday happiness, which is what we're going to be focusing on, is getting better at coping in different kinds of ways, developing coping skills. The reason that I didn't include it is that's what we talk about most of the time, and it's what we wrote a book on together called Resilience. So if you're interested in that, you can look it up. And before we get into the material for today's episode, just a quick reminder, you can follow me on Substack. I'm writing over there now. And if you would like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. But Dad, I would love to actually just start with you here. You've thought about these ideas for a very long time, both as a clinical psychologist and as a Buddhist teacher. And I'm wondering how you think about this just whole field of liking and wanting to kind of get us going here. Well, the first thing I want to headline is to appreciate how you are centering this topic. You're not just saying, oh, by the way, we're going to do a little casual riffing about something. You're saying, well, by the way, from my perspective, you know, as someone with some real, in your case, expertise here, this is probably one I, of the... I think the, this is it, man. Yeah, if not the, it's tied for first place as one of the yeah. most central matters in a good, contributing, fulfilling life. Wow. Totally. <laughs> I want to second that emotion, as they you say. Know, it's a big claim. It's a big claim. And we can talk about why that is maybe a little bit during the episode. Yeah, yeah definitely. And of course, there's a lot of other stuff that matters too. I'm not saying this is the only thing, but I'm saying it's way up there. Yeah, it's, especially it's how to be about other important things. Yeah, like, for example, totally, people can love, yes. but yeah, and you can love from a standpoint of enjoying loving and being motivated toward loving without getting caught up in being lovesick, craving, turning into a stalker. Needing other people to love us a certain kind of way. Totally, yeah. yeah. So you're really getting at about how to approach so many of the things that we mm-hmm. care about as well. So fantastic. Yeah, it's a meta skill. Yeah. I guess I would just put it as kind of a difference between, so I've walked through casinos. Probably a lot of us have been in casinos. And one time, I recall, I decided to play blackjack. And I had almost no clue. I said, okay, I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna invest $20. Not an expert blackjack player, <laughs> Dad. I didn't really, uh, didn't really think you were, but if you had been, that would have been great to find out right now. I, I respect game in that area. And I thoroughly enjoyed playing blackjack with my $20. I knew it was a hard limit. And I, of course, gradually rather 
quickly, gradually lost it all uh, at the cheapest possible table. But I had a great time in the process. So I liked it, but I wasn't driven around it. On the other hand, I passed these people who would be sitting in stools, feeding quarters into slot machines, for which, as you know, there's no skill whatsoever. And they just kept pulling the lever. They looked exhausted. When the quarters occasionally started piling into the bowl, they won. There was some kind of a payoff. They would sort of glance at it, grab the quarters out, put them into their pile, and then keep shoving quarters into the slot. Frankly, like pigeons or rats pecking a lever to get a pellet or a little bit of electricity into a pleasure center in their brain. They did not seem to be enjoying it at all, and they were very driven around it. Thus, the traditional saying, liking without wanting is heaven, wanting without liking is hell. So we have these ordinary examples all the way around us. You're familiar with my example of aspiration without attachment, in which I talk about trying to succeeded a level of rock climbing that was pretty much a stretch. But I I went for it, but I wasn't attached to the outcome. So that would be another example of where we can can really care about things. We can bring passion to it. We can feel disappointed or sad if we don't get it in normal ways, but we're not invaded in the core of our being by a, a compelling, overwhelming sense of drivenness related to whatever it is. There's a lot of interesting stuff about it in terms of biology and how we evolved to like and and how our systems in our brain get going when we shift from, I would call it healthy desire into kind of driven wanting in the way we're using that word here. There's good biology there. There's some interesting brain science as well. We're going to get into it. In the ultimate, it's about living in the world on the basis of a profound underlying contentment and equanimity even as your heart is touched by the sorrows of the world and you do the best you can about them. As you said, we're going to talk a little bit more about like the hard science side of it in terms of the the underlying neurology and neurobiology. But I actually just wanted to start with the psychology here. Ask you as a clinical psychologist, there are two major impediments or issues that I see people have over and over again in this area and that I've seen inside of myself, frankly. And the first is inhibition around liking. Mm. This can kind of take two forms for people. First form is there's just nothing in my life to like. I don't like my life as it is. There's a lot of stuff that frustrates me about it. There's just not that much that's very enjoyable that's going on. That's kind of one inhibition that people have. Another inhibition that people have is for whatever reason, and I'm really curious what your take is on this, just like not letting themselves fully enjoy something that's enjoyable. This sort of funny thing that'll happen with people where I think of myself, I'm eating a dish of ice cream. This is like a basic enjoyable activity, right? But as I'm eating that dish of ice cream, I'm just getting swept along by the brain. I'm thinking about other stuff. I'm not really in the experience of eating that thing. I'm thinking about this interaction I had with a friend that went a little sideways and uh, how do they really think about me? And then I look down and the dish is gone, you know, or the ice cream is gone. The dish is still there. It's an empty dish. Yeah, that's right. So I haven't really enjoyed that experience. Then on the wanting side of it, One of the problems that people often run into is this kind of defensive wanting that exists inside of the culture. This notion that if you're not really intensely driven towards some kind of end, you will just never achieve like real success in life. And so what you need is that wanting push to get you there. What do you say to those two natural things that people tend to bring up about this material? 
Wow. Well, you've brought up so many things that I'm curious about your take as well. Maybe we ought to do a whole episode on the power of distinctions. <laughs> you do. You love a distinction, Dad. I, I don't think I know anyone who loves a distinction <laughs> as much as you do. You love rigorous clarity about which bucket a thing goes into. So yeah, yeah go ahead here, but make some distinctions. Yeah. You know, the basic decision is, you, I'm holding up a piece of paper here, you draw a line down the middle of the page, and on this side and on that side, right? Fruit, not fruit. Just basic category stuff. You do that with your little kids. We would do this with you when you were a little kid, just sorting things into categories, category formation. So it's really helpful to appreciate both hands. That's a way of putting it. That, for example, a person can, let's say, honor their depressed mood Let's say they're grieving, maybe their disappointment in the life they have, maybe a sense of outrage about society. They can honor those things while at the same time enjoying the bowl of ice cream or being glad that others are enjoying wholesome things or can see the flower and see the beauty in the flower even while recognizing the wasteland of, let's say, the inner city you know, that's been neglected for generations by the powers that be. So you can do both hand. And in fact, neurologically and biologically and psychologically with tons of good evidence, the more you attend to that which is legitimately also good, the more resourced you become for the long struggle against what's bad. Second, another both and, you can pursue your work with a lot of passion and enthusiasm. And I think there are certain kinds of work at certain kinds of moments where you better do that. If you're Working at full speed in an emergency room, of course your pulse is running is over 100. It better be. I'm a fan of the San Francisco 49ers. You know, wish them well. If you look, if you're on the practice field or on the real playing field, and you look to the guy or person to the left or the right of you, and they're not really sweating bullets with their full effort, you don't really want to be. You don't want them on your team. Okay, there's a place for that. But when we get caught up in a lot of anger or self-criticism, or we become exhausted, we don't really have a way of balancing those moments of intense effort with the rest of our life, then we're in, then we're in trouble. So you could do both and. Again, look for the passion, look for the focus, look for the work ethic. I'm astonished, frankly. Uh, I know I'm going to sound like that cranky guy yelling at the kids to get off his lawn, but I'm astonished at the lack of work ethic in so many people, just at the mm. most basic level of, you know, respect your craft, respect your team, do a reasonable day's work, right? So you can do it both end there. So that's what I would I would say to people. And I would actually, finishing here, invite people to think about models of high performance in any domain. They all with almost no exception, if they have any kind of long career of high performance, they find a way to work their butt off <laughs> along with life balance and with a cheerful, joyful spirit along the way. Yeah, no, and I, I think that for most people, that's totally the case. Also, some aspect of this that I wonder about is bringing more liking to wanting. Huh. And it's that example that you gave of pulling the slot machine, right? Where there's this habitual pattern that we have or this profound desire that we have. But the actual question of how am I enjoying this along the way and how would I enjoy it if I got it truly, 
not in the fantasy of it, but in the reality of it. Like, would I really enjoy that experience? I have a very serious hobby or had a very serious hobby for a long time as a dancer, semi-professional, spent a lot of time in competitive dance communities. I know so many people who love dancing, then get into competing at a very high level, and they stop loving dancing so much, yeah. or at least it seems that way from the outside. Yeah. And if they don't make their final or they aren't competitively successful, it's a disaster. But if they get a trophy, it just goes on the mantle with all the other trophies. It vanishes yeah. into the wallpaper of their existence. Did they really enjoy it that much along the way? And a lot of the time, people will strive and strive and strive to achieve this goal, get there, look around and be like, wait, is this really it? And that's another problem that comes up all the time with craving, is that the craving tells us a story about how good things will be when we get it, and the goalposts just constantly move. They get pushed back and pushed back and pushed back, and the experience is never quite as good as we want it to be. In part, I think, because we haven't just learned to like along the way. I think that's true, and you brought up inhibition on enjoyment. Yes, I think this is a huge one. I think here I'm gonna go full Freudian on you. I think a fair amount of that, honestly, for many people, is rooted in childhood experiences of being shamed around their body. Yeah, I think there's some total repression stuff here going on. Yeah, that's right. We're shamed around sensual desires, some of which were, you know, could be eroticized in ways that are just natural to them. Okay, no worries. And then you think about later experiences in life related to sexuality and, and other forms of pleasure. So I really appreciate the work of, for example, John Kabat-Zinn talking about come to our senses. And mm. both meanings of that come literally back into our senses and come to our senses in, in the meaning of, hey, folks, it's time to get sensible you know, about life in a lot of ways, right? Charlotte Selver, her work about sensory awareness and Lee Lesser, a major teacher in that area. There's a lot about this that's just wonderful. Uh, the classic MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, raisin exercise for five minutes or even 10 minutes, one raisin, sustained mindfulness, just enjoy that raisin. For people who might not be familiar, you eat one raisin and you try to stay with the experience of it for this long period of time. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think that's really true. And you're also really getting at being in the present. Yeah, totally. I mean, if they think about so much about wanting is about the future or, you know. Or the past, yeah. I'll call it negative wanting, regrets mm -hmm. related to not fulfilling wants, which often have to do with the past. And liking lives in the present. Totally. No, I think this inhibition issue that you're you're raising here, Dad, including the psychological elements of it around just pure pleasure, are super real. Not to do the we live in a society thing, but like we live in a society that has this like two funny things about it. On the one hand, it is hyper-centralized and hyper-sexualized. And on the other hand, how much actual like pleasurable physical enjoying do we really do on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah. And how good are we at really getting all of the juice out of the orange, to use a phrase I love, when we're in an enjoyable experience? And I think most of the time we're not that great at it, in part because people get shamed for it. They feel silly when they do things that their body actually likes. And I'm not even talking about like sensual experiences here. I'm talking about you do something at work that you enjoy. And you authentically enjoy it for its own sake. And you kind of have this impulse to like move your body a little bit. Yeah. Or like 
do something really quote unquote cringe, like give yourself a high five or whatever it is. Like some yeah. other kind of like, Ugh, do I really want to do that sort of thing? It's like life is too short, man. Just just uh-huh. do it. Just like do what you can to actually enjoy an experience because that'll help you stick with it so much. It'll feel good on its own. It motivates good behavior in the world. And I just think we're really inhibited around that stuff. Is there anything that was real for you uh, as an example mm, related to either allowing yourself to enjoy it and or really kind of foregrounding it as something that's to be deliberately focused on bringing more enjoyment to? Yeah, I had a, I think that a lot of the sources for me with this stuff is really exactly what you were talking about. I think it was not early childhood, but childhood experiences with other kids and experiences of feeling like my enthusiasm about something really rubbed other people the wrong way. Yeah, I was, I just came across a little too enthusiastic, a little too energized, a little too big and loud and wanting to play. And other kids were like, whoa, that's, that's a lot, man even in understandable ways. And that just really caused me to get a little inhibited around self-expression and around the pleasurable aspects of that kind of enthusiasm. And I I think that you could frame a lot of my, I don't know, from 20 to 36, where I am now, as a journey to reclaim that enthusiasm, which got kind of trained out of me. Um, To answer your specific question, which is like, how do you do that? Um, For me, a huge part of it was frankly getting out of my head. I'm a very cognitive person that probably comes across on the podcast. That's my natural resting state. But so much of enjoyment is is sensory. It's not driven by our thoughts. It's driven by body sensations and associated feelings. It can be driven by our thoughts, but the house of it is in the body. Uh, What a phrase, the house of your body. Thinking about that a little for myself, I want to create a model here or name a model in which model emotion up. and we could say this as well for mm, things in life in general you can think of these two dimensions is it affectively negative or positive or sensually sensory let's say negative to positive and then you have this other dimension low intensity to high intensity that gives you kind of a quadrant right? You can have intensely negative experiences. You can have mild negative experiences. You can have mild positive experiences. You can have intense positive experiences. And there's a lot of life that's about mild, mildly intense liking that's really worth paying attention to. Subtle enjoyments of various kinds and learning how to find them. Like one of the things I've actually kind of played with, tried to do, is to learn how to help myself learn to like something, including something like, honestly, the pattern in a a brown rug, just an ordinary kind of 10-year-old rug. I'll look at it and I'll help myself just find beauty in it, like it, be amazed by it, for example, right? Then there are experiences that are very positive and very intense. And can you let yourself move into that really passionate area? If you imagine the two by two matrix, highly positive and highly intense, let's say. Totally. And that's been a, that was definitely a journey for me. I mean, I grew up in a family where both my parents were wonderful. My mom was very focused on propriety, partly as, as part of her kind of effort to reclaim the myth of high status that her family, her, her mother's family lived with until they lost everything in the depression. 
And then they lived in kind of genteel poverty after that. And for my dad, it was more buttoned down, kind of North Dakota, Lutheran, Methodist, yeah, Midwest kind of culture. Family of ranchers, born in the sod house, the whole thing. Yeah, strong, silent types. <laughs> and then you throw in gender socialization. And so for me to be able to reclaim, partly through rock climbing and through some, through some other things, a capacity for intensity. Physical activity right there. Interesting, yeah. right? Rock climbing. Yeah, that was a that was a big one. Yeah. And you know, and to to explore that. So people listening might think about this. Okay, how can you make more room for both very subtle, mild forms of liking with so many opportunities around you, and also make room for intense, passionate liking? And noting, by the way, as, as you know, that as soon as you try to hold on to the experience of what you like, but because you want it, you want to reify it, to essentialize it, to keep it, to possess it, to stabilize it. As soon as you try to hold on to it, based on wanting, the liking goes away. So yeah, it slips through your fingers totally. Yeah, is to let yourself really like something while simultaneously letting go. And that's th- that. I think is the crux of a lot of this. Right? Is that because of the way the brain is built. There is a natural movement that we have from enjoying an experience to craving more of it. Gee, Forrest, why would that be useful during evolution? <laughs> Tell us, please. <laughs> Who could possibly imagine why that might be? Why, why would be, we be incentivized to approach positive stimuli and run away from negative stimuli? Wow. So this is actually pretty intuitive. Like we can go into some hardcore biology here, but just Think about it. On a basic level, it makes sense that we would have this drive to crave more of the things that we like because the things that we like are tied to our survival. You know, consuming calories, resting and recovering, having sex, passing on gene copies, whatever it is. Like these are the things that the brain incentivizes. But what's really important to recognize in, in how we work is that the brain cares essentially about three things it cares about conserving energy. It cares about living to see the sunrise tomorrow, which is a big part of conserving energy. And it cares about passing on gene copies, aka having sex. That's what it cares about from a biological standpoint. And it's really important to recognize that enjoying life while nice is actually not on that list. And there's often a pretty big gap between enjoying life and fulfilling those three goals. So while those three goals made us the most successful species on the planet and were essential for our survival under incredibly harsh conditions thousands, if not millions of years ago, these days, they got a lot of problems associated with them. I got to drop this in. I'm suddenly imagining you and me 30,000 years ago hanging with our buds there in, I don't know, south of France or something and trying to make our way, sitting with each other around the fire. I don't know why I'm going there, but hey, I like it. It's fun. (laughs) (laughs) I think maybe part of what you're saying here, Dad, that's kind of funny about it, the notion of the the two people 30,000 years ago, is that some of these problems that we're talking to are kind of first world problems. Or maybe another way to put it is they're 21st century problems. If you're 30,000 years ago, you're mostly focused on, hello, living to see the sunrise tomorrow. Uh, Problems are immediate, they are intense, and they are intimately tied to whether or not you survive. Yeah. These days, thankfully for most people, if you're in a position to listen to a podcast like ours and take an hour out of your day to do it, that's probably not the condition of your life. 
Your life is focused on problems that are amorphous. They feel highly threatening, but they're often not right now this moment. And we live in this constant haze, this, as you've described it, this pink zone where we're neither really totally rested in safety and security and comfort, but also really not under immediate threat. Yeah. And that creates this fuzz of anxiety and stress that permeate our lives. And that fuzz, I think, is one of the reasons why it's actually really hard to drop into liking. It's also one of the reasons that we're so sensitive to craving, because there's always something to be a little bit worried about. There are very powerful forces that are heavily incentivized to keep us worried in different kinds of ways and to nudge us down the stream of craving, uh, in part so we continue to satisfy the capitalist endeavor, but for other reasons too. And that just creates a stew that we're swimming in of nudging toward craving without actually that much liking along the way. A breakthrough for me was to realize that I could be strong and determined and firm and enthusiastic without being hijacked Mm. by wanting or craving and without getting incredibly invested in the results. That for me at least was really quite a breakthrough. I've been exploring lately, as you know, the wisdom of both caring and not caring. (laughs) You know, like T.S. Eliot wrote, teach us to care and not to care, teach us to sit still. And that's been a real big one. And I just want to kind of name it and foreground it. And I guess I want to ask you, is there a concrete example of maybe an area in your life that you've really been exploring in which you're bringing your whole heart to it, right? you're liking, you're caring, but you're not letting yourself get caught up in drivenness about it when in the past maybe you had been. A really big example for me these days that in some ways I'm practicing with to an extent right now as we're doing this conversation uh, relates to my work life and relates to aspiration around wanting people to perceive the work a certain kind of way. In other words, wanting them to like it wanting to achieve at certain levels of success that could maybe create other conditions in my life where I would be able to provide for other people or, you know, retire at a reasonable time or whatever it is. And then more ego-driven stuff, Mm. stuff around being told a story as a young person. And this is the classic like gifted kid problems, you know, for a whole generation of quote unquote gifted kids who emerged into the real world, thought that they would just continue to be praised endlessly. And it turned out actually, sorry, we're going to give you like economic collapse instead. There's an aspect of it where you have aspirations for yourself. Like I want to be as successful as fill in the blank person. And there can be a lot of craving around that. Uh, Certainly for me, there can. And a place of practice for me has been shifting more into enjoying and appreciating and having self-respect for the work that I do and the kind of content that I make. Like we were talking recently about the kind of podcast that we have, Dad, and we have a, you know, a podcast that probably isn't going to appeal to everybody. That's okay. And really coming to terms with that while retaining you know, a feeling of real authenticity has been super important for me and has been really tough, honestly. Like I've really struggled with it at various moments in time. And so getting into more like a feeling of enjoyment of what I'm doing in the moment, as opposed to thinking while I'm writing about how good something's going to do or whether or not other people will like it, 
has been a total place of effort for me that I'm that I'm still working on, that I'm not a finished product around at all. Does that make sense? As your friend, I'm really glad for you. And yeah. encouraging uh, the process here, and, and I very much relate to it. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney Show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast. But while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. If you don't mind, I would love to ask you here, Dad, what do you think, because this is such a common problem that people deal with, there's something that they like, something that they enjoy, and then there's this natural shift from liking into wanting and craving. What do you think helps people work with that space, stay in liking without tipping into wanting, maybe get better at recognizing it as it's going on? Like, What are some of the key skills there for people? Wow. You know, my inner clinical psychologist slash Buddhist teacher is just 
<laughs> yeah, which is great. <laughs> and, you know, I, I know. I'm sure I gave you like <laughs> no, eight mo- things popped up on the list. <laughs> no, let, let, let's try to start with one of them and then we'll go from there. Yeah. So wherever you want to start here. I would say first, meet your own needs. Because craving, wanting, is in reference to perceived needs. And so the more that you actually meet your needs in legitimate, wholesome, sustainable ways, there's honestly less of an underlying engine. I've nearly drowned, and I craved breath. I craved air. As it turned out, I was panicking because I craved air, and it's when a process that is still mysterious to me occurred in which that craving was just gone. I was then calm enough and at peace enough with no sense of inner disturbance whatsoever to gradually untangle myself from the kelp I was trapped in. So it's appropriate to crave under certain conditions. So take care of your needs in real ways. And that's a really underestimated priority. Um, There are many people who live in relative material comfort these days. They're not starving. They're not running for their lives from some bombing attack in their city, although unfortunately some people are, but they they don't feel that their basic needs are met, and in some ways because they haven't yet been. Maybe their financial situation is still precarious. Maybe they really are worrying about some health issues that you know they're not doing what they can to take care of. And I'm speaking strictly in the frame of what you can do, but in the frame of what you can do, your needs really matter. Start there. Second, be mindful of the distinction between liking and wanting. And right there, you can feel it. As soon as you move into wanting, you'll start to experience contraction, pressure, insistence, and a surge of the sense of me, myself, and I. And related to that, a subtle and then increasingly not so subtle dysphoria of different kinds anxiety, irritability, sense of hurt that tends to just start coming in. So if you're kind of watching, and I I think of it almost like, I guess maybe old school stereo systems where you see the the green lights going up and then coming down, and then you see the red lights coming, going up and coming down, and sometimes both go up and sometimes both settle down. That kind of ongoing inner dashboard of liking and wanting, woof, really service. Because then you start to notice, oh, wanting in the sense we mean it here, problematic, craving, clinging, drivenness, problematic attachment. As soon as you're moving into the wanting zone, the red zone, it's not so much fun anymore. You don't like it so much. It's not so pleasurable and it's not so good for you. And you start to notice that increasingly with that inner dashboard, good changes kind of follow. So I'd say those two things for sure. And then I'll just say that at a kind of a deep level around all this, I really think there's a value in valuing autonomy, valuing freedom. Do really appreciate that what we're talking about here is a growing inner freedom in relationship to outer and inner conditions. They're occurring, and some are pleasant, some are unpleasant, some are relational, some are neutral, none of the above. They're occurring. But in our relationship to them, we claim for ourselves a kind of freedom. I don't want to be a puppet. I don't want to be bossed around by the ancient little craving addict inside my brain. 
I don't want that. I don't want my wants to dominate me. I don't want to be dominated by them. I don't want to be bossed around by them. I want to be able to choose what are my real purposes, what do I really care about. And I don't mean to shame people. I mean to really appreciate, to have kind of a jaundiced view about being pushed around by your wants, right? So I would just, okay, three things. What do you think of those? Well, I, th- I think they're they're really important. They're totally central. I love that you started with satisfying essentially useful wants is maybe a way to put it, yeah. essential needs, needs. As, the, as the basis from which we can work more skillfully with the wants that are kind of getting in the way of our happiness. Because pick your model here, Maslow's hierarchy or whatever else, like we are needy beings. And that's part of what I think is important to recognize here too, is we make being needy just the worst thing that you can say to another person, right? Nobody wants to be needy. Yeah. We're all needy, man. That's it's right. okay. Including we need to be loved. Got it. We were talking about survival early on and how wanting is tied to the survival system of the brain because it leads to us pursuing things that are good for meeting those three core goals that the brain has. Guess what one of them is? Relationship. Being with other people. Being seen as a useful member of the band so you don't get kicked out of it because that essentially was a death sentence thousands and thousands of years ago, right? You're not going to survive on your own and you're certainly not going to pass on genes on your own. So you need other people to like and love you. So yeah, that's a total fundamental need that we have. And so feeling that way, there's no shame in it. It's really okay. A lot of this is about what is our relationship with our needs and what's the influence that they have over our life. And so I would love to ask you about one subset of wanting dad that I've really struggled with myself. And I call this the search for the slightly better experience. And so I'll try to model this for you and you tell me what you think, okay? I'm, I'm already completely interested. <laughs> oh, okay, great, awesome. There's this funny thing that I've seen in myself, I think I've recognized in other people. You're in a situation or something is happening that is pretty good. An example for this for me is um, I got into this pattern for a long time when I was in social situations with other people. I could absolutely find things in that social situation to really like. They were fun on their face. I'm with other people I find basically enjoyable. I'm in a situation that you know I don't find deeply uncomfortable. It's just like a normal social environment, right? As that is happening, there's this kind of little shift inside of my brain where these other thoughts start coming up. All of a sudden, I'm looking forward to the next time that we do something like this that's maybe a little different. It's a little better. It's a little more the way I want it to be. I'm picking all of these nets habitually. I'm finding ways where there is some slightly better experience that's kind of on the horizon for me. And so I've shifted there from enjoying what's going on right now into craving this slightly better version of the thing. And that really takes all of the enjoyment out of whatever is going on for me in the moment. And this is a pattern that I had for, I think, a really long time, actually. I habitually did this. It led to frustration with other people, frustration with my friendships, because they weren't quite the way that I wanted them to be, even if they were like pretty darn good. And I'm wondering if you think that this is something that A, people do, or is this just a me problem? And then how people can work with that tendency to do that little shift into wanting something that's a little bit different, a little bit better, when what's going on right now is really pretty okay. Mm. That's so interesting. May I ask you a few questions? Yeah, totally. 
when you're doing that, think about the distinction between a purely cognitive process of assessment and discernment and making little mental notes. I'm thinking of people who cook for a living and they're thinking, oh, this was good. How can I make it better next time? So there's a purely cognitive kind of appropriate analytic process. Okay. Distinguishing between that, what's the underlying mood? Is there an underlying sense of discontent, a little, some frustration? Frustration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This feeling of not quite getting what you want. That there's this thing, there's this itch on your back that you can't quite scratch. And you keep on scratching around the itch, and scratching around the itch is pretty good, but it's really not quite scratching the itch. Does that make sense? Great. Underneath that frustration or discontent, mm-hmm. what longing is there? Oh, what an interesting question. Well, I think you're right. I think there is a longing there. I think it's hard for me to put my finger on it in terms of like expressing it in clear language. But I do think that there is this feeling of like wanting a kind of amorphous thing that's sort of hard to put your finger on. Yeah. If if we were doing real therapy, I would, yeah we would we I would, would start unpacking that totally <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. but also I'll just because we're doing like a therapy because yeah, we're, we're on a podcast right now yeah totally. <laughs> yeah I'll kind of move a little more rapidly myself yeah please uh, so uh, which might make some real therapists listening they might be cringing like oh Rick slow it down but okay um, so well around that longing just to name some things there there might be. A, a kind of a childlike longing for certain kinds of experiences. Yeah, 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 totally. Okay. Such as like for a just world or to be deeply heard in a way that's not quite happening and the, you know, the rough and tumble of just hanging out with friends, you know, at a restaurant or something, deeply heard and or a longing for a sense of purity or infinity some people do talk about that kind of thing, or a longing for a, a love, to be immersed in a, a sense of love and relatedness that feels utterly carefree, utterly content. There's an aspect of that purity bit that feels true to me, which is more about like this feeling inside that it should be more fun than it is, if that mm. kind of makes sense. Like it's not as fun as this is supposed to be the thing that's really fun. Oh, maybe, wow, this is actually really helpful for me. I I think that there's a craving story that's happening here. Here's what I mean. You've looked forward to the thing for so long. You've idealized it in your mind. This is the thing that you were really excited to be doing with other people. You're jazzed up for it. There's so much wanting that's happening in the system. You're wanting, wanting, wanting. You're looking forward, looking forward, looking forward. And then you get in the room and it's just what it is, which is you're with your friends and you're hanging out and it's okay, but it is what it is. It is not nirvana, you know what I mean? It is good, not great. Or, hey, it's great, but it's not perfect, you know, whatever it is. Like, there's a (laughs) gap there, right? Because nothing is ever as good as the idealization, right? Yeah. So... I think that that is actually what's really going on here, that I was sold a story by the craving that was yes. that was not accurate, that was just short in the moment. And my perception of that, rather than uh, doing something called technically updating the reward value of the experience, so this is when we look at our experiences and go, hey, 
your brain is selling you a false bill of goods here. It is yes. selling you something that it cannot deliver on. You know, our experiences do not deliver on that because we live a real life with real problems, real imperfections, right? Yeah. And but instead of updating the reward value and just going like, oh, it's good to look forward to this. Looking forward to stuff is great, but anticipating nirvana is just not going to happen here, dude. Rather than doing that, I was making the experience wrong. I was saying, oh, the problem isn't the wanting. The problem is that this experience isn't quite right. And if yeah. it were a little more right, then my wanting would be accurate. Does that kind of ah. make sense, Dad? I think that that's what's happening here. Oh, for sure. And and you're in the middle of insight, which is awesome, right? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Love that. Yeah, no, totally. That, this was helpful for me. Yeah. If it's okay, I want to kind of restate a little bit of what you said there. Yeah, totally. Oh, just back at you. Something you were going to bring up in this conversation, I'm sure we'll get to it. In effect, you're speaking to a prediction error. In other yes. words, right? Yes. The brain, I, I call it the inner ad agency with regard to both threats and opportunities, you know, negative and positive, tends to overdo it to motivate, you know, monkeys and lizards and, you know, goldfish to just really do what they have to do to stay alive. But when you totally. actually come into the reality that's being predicted, it's usually neither so bad nor so great. Okay. And then that sense of a prediction error is dysphoric. It's a little frustrating. It's like, eh, dopamine levels slump. We don't like that when there's a prediction error and then we want to you know, get engaged with that. So that's one part of it. If it's okay, I do want to go back to this longing thing. And for me, here's kind of the step that's possible when it rings true. Underneath wishing for certain things to happen or words to be said or people to act a certain way is a longing for a certain kind of experience. A beautiful love, just profound contentment, inner ease, a sense of the sublime. And as a sidebar, there is sometimes an intuitive sense of paradise lost or being cast out of Eden that can go back to early childhood and which some people talk about, you know, in terms of birth and rebirth and then rebirth, a sense of getting stuck here and planet Earth with bodies that start decaying from the moment you're born. There's a longing. And then here's, here's the money question, kind of related to that, or the step. Can, once you have a sense of what you long for, can you unify or join with that experience already now? Mm. Can you rest in already being centered in that kind of contentment or unconditional love or sense of unconditioned, you know, spaciousness and so forth. So I'm asking you, and I'm also mentioning this as a sequence. Oh, is that a, was that, that a, other I, that wasn't a rhetorical question. That yeah, was an actual question. It's both. Yeah. I'm naming this as a sequence that people can engage in to unify yourself with that, which you long for. Hmm already in the present. And then, you know, for you, do you relate to that? I do, actually. And I think that existential craving, maybe to put it a certain kind of way, is totally a part of this conversation. Yeah. And whether it is that longing for something that never really existed, which is something that we've talked about on the podcast in the past, longing, longing for a kind of family yeah. that you never had in your life, 
longing for a certain kind of experience in your 20s when your 20s don't exist anymore and you just never had that experience. That's super real for me. Even more existentially, longing for being in a different body. Wow, that's a huge one. These kind of spiritual experiences that you're indicating, Dad, where people will have a pretty wild experience, whether it's in deep meditative states or with the aid of psychedelics, or they just have a moment where their brain just does this to them for whatever reason, where they get some kind of feeling about some other bigger thing from themselves, and then they kind of wake up and find themselves in this one human body, and wow, that's got a lot of problems associated with it when you were just like hanging out in oneness and allness a second ago, right? That was a much more enjoyable experience. Like longing for all of those things is totally a form of craving that we kind of need to grapple with in life to, I, I think, really be truly fulfilled with the life that we have with all of its bumps and bruises and warts along the way. Totally. I'm kind of underlining a counterintuitive way in here in which you honor the longing and you use the longing thinking about, I've never flown a plane, but I understand if you're flying a plane coming into a landing and it's, you know, it's pitch black, there are no stars or no lights and you're, you're coming in through, you know, a, a downpour of rain. On your instrument panel, there's kind of a five by five matrix or square in which you locate the dot of your plane and you want to keep your plane in the center of that five by five square, right? And that will bring you home. That will bring you to a safe landing. Uh, you kind of follow the beam, the, the carrier beam on the way home. And there's something about honoring your longings, the really, really deep ones that are underneath often surface cravings. And then the fulfillment of the longing is, is always in the present, is to find ways in which you can be unified with, one with, the fulfillment of the longing, rather than swerving away from it. So I, that's just what I want to kind of underline here. So as I kind of expected when we were planning for this one, this has become a very expansive conversation. We've covered a lot along the way, in part because I think that it's just such a central topic. And I would love to end the episode today by getting a little bit more practical as we've talked about all of this stuff that can feel kind of big and, and fuzzy and very personal. Mm. But there is a fundamental skill here that really impacts our ability to work with liking and wanting. And it's the ability to, to just see the whole of our experience mm. with all of its parts, as opposed to getting wrapped up in certain parts. Because if you think about any experience, like you're drinking a cup of coffee, right? That experience has a ton of different parts. There's the feeling of your hand against the cup. There's the feeling of the coffee in your mouth. There's the warmth. There's the flavor. There's all of this stuff. Then there are all of these other parts too. There are your associations with yourself as a coffee drinker. There's how you think about drinking coffee. There's when you drink coffee in the day. All of this stuff is there. We're aware of almost none of it. 90% of that lives in the background of our mind. And typically, for most of us with the sensory stuff, it's like, is it warm? Does it taste good? You know, that's what's being centered. But that's true of all of our experiences, right? They're all made up of parts, and the brain is making choices about what to push up the priority stack into our direct consciousness. And because, as we've said, liking and particularly wanting and craving are so intimately tied to survival, those are the feelings and sensations that the brain tends to prioritize in the wholeness of our experience. 
But a basic notion of mindfulness practice is the ability to be with all the parts of the experience rather than getting so captured by a small number of them. So let's say that we've developed that skill a little bit. All we've right. got some mindful awareness going on. We can see all the parts, okay, or at least some of them. And we notice in a moment, oh, there's some stuff over here to like. Or we notice in a moment, wow, I'm just really getting wrapped up in some craving right now. For each of those examples, Dad, I would love you to give a little bit at the end here, practically for people, about what they can do to either like more of the stuff that there is to like or unhook themselves from that craving drive when they're in the moment with it. Really cool. So one thing is to, and this is fantastic homework. I want to give everybody listening this homework assignment. It's really sweet homework. It's to deliberately have experiences over your day. You could do it every day and just, or you could do it from time to time routinely, but to really, as you put it for us, squeeze the juice out of the orange. Have an experience. It's great to start with simple experiences like taking a shower or drinking some water when you're thirsty or eating something that tastes good or you know, having somebody you know, scratch your back or just hugging your friend or looking at a flower. It could be really simple. Deliberately turn up the volume. Turn up the intensity on that experience so that you're really in the deliciousness of it, the lusciousness of it. You're really in it. And as you do that, here's the kicker. Really be aware of continuously letting that experience change, even as you're sustaining the focus of it and the enjoyment of it. That combination, turning up the volume while letting it keep changing. I don't know if I've ever heard you give that specific cue before, Dad. I'm sure you've done it probably actually more in the in the meditative stuff that you lead as opposed to the stuff we do on the podcast yeah. together. But I think that's a great cue. I really love that. Okay, super. And and Explore what that's like. That let it change aspect, yeah. Yeah, because, and, and what you're doing in effect too, you're increasing your sensory acuity and awareness to it. You're also counter-training a brain that's designed to, the better it gets, the more the brain wants to hold on to it. The brain's designed, as you say, to want what it likes, you know, to crave what it enjoys. And instead you're, you're defeating it, you're undermining it, you're dissolving it. So that, I, would, I would say that to people, that's a really good practice. And you could do it around accomplishing little things. Like you finished a thing, slow it down, really, really, really enjoy it. Another little detail of this is to appreciate we do have the power to increase the intensity of our experiences. That's one of the eight ways to internalize positive experiences so that they become lasting changes inside. So you grow the good that lasts inside my material on them taking in the good, the heal process, et cetera. One of the five ways to enrich an experience is to increase its intensity. Research shows we can increase the intensity of experiences. Even fairly subtle experiences like tranquility, you can be intensely tranquil. And so getting good at being able to turn up the volume on your own, that's a useful skill. Around that, I think it's really important to pay attention to the Routines of our days, our schedules, and our sense of what we're allowed to experience to make room for more enjoyment in our life. Yeah. You know, if our drivenness- some of the inhibition stuff. Yeah, totally. Yeah. If we're just dog tired every time we go to bed. I, I've had to deal with this, you know, because I, as mm, you know- This is a great point. Tend to work my butt off. I do, I do have a workout. 
to a fault. But anyway, uh, I'm trying to. <laughs> With you, maybe it needs to relax. I know. I'm trying, trying to be pull less. Pull it back a little bit, buddy. I know, I know. We might be I'm wandering be less... into craving territory. Yeah. Who knows? I know. I know. I know. Oh, yeah. Driven. Oh, the puppet, right? Just automatic. Yeah. Just automatic habit. So, yeah, I'm trying to be less work ethical if you follow me. You know, anyway, is to just to take a look at what you're crowding out and what you're exhausting and also what you feel entitled to. Do you, do you feel entitled to take breaks when other people are working? Whoa. In terms of gender socialization, how do you feel about being witnessed by others doing things that somehow are counter that socialization in terms of personal enjoyment? like not being so on task, for example. So I, I think that's useful too. Can I do a thing on craving? Yeah, I'd love to, to end here with you're in the knot. The, the craving process is happening in the brain. You got that thing that you're going after in a way that just doesn't feel good anymore. Yeah. What do you do to untangle yourself from it? Yeah. Go wide. What I mean by that is, for example, notice tension in your body. Craving has a sense of pressure and contraction. So pressure contraction, think of that as a kind of knot or a place of squeeze, right? You could, as I'm doing right now, you could put your hands together, you're making a fist, you're squeezing the fist. What I'm calling go wide is just a general felt sense, an idea, an image of opening out, opening out. There you are with this really intense should in your mind, a rule, a standard, a goal, I must, I should, right? Well, cognitively and emotionally, there's a certain contracting around that. Instead, open it out. What else is true? What are, what are other values in your life? What else is in play? Often when we're caught up in craving, the sense of self really intensifies as this localization again, that's knotted, it's contracted, it's sort of congealed, go wide. Open out that sense of self. Lift your gaze to the horizon. Be aware of so many processes in reality altogether that are operating. All this might sound kind of abstract. It's actually really quite felt. That That's a real clue. Craving involves pressured contraction. So if you release the sense of pressure and you are less contracted, less craving, you can still be fully purposeful. That's also really interesting to explore how to be purposeful and passionate and open to positive, wholesome currents carrying you along, but doing so in a way that has a sense of streaming in it rather than pressure and contraction. That's a uh, really summary introduction to an extremely deep topic. But I think that for most people on like an everyday level, that's a great way to uh, work with some of those difficult experiences. Oh, great. Well, we could just keep going here. We could keep going here endlessly. But I think that this is, this is good for one episode. And I'm really glad that we talked about this today. This is honestly one of my favorite ones that we've done over the last little while. So I'm really glad that we did it. Yeah. I, and if, may I add one last little thing? I was yeah, just please. reflecting on sort of final takeaways here. And another one is to be attentive to how other people want you to crave. Other people want you to want. Yeah. I mean, think about ads. Think about the structuring of so much in our politics that's about outrage or grievance in which they want you to want to be aggrieved 
and angry at them, right? They're manipulating them. Think about people yeah. in your or immediate situation where they're just really wrapped up in something and they want you to believe it. So I, I think about being attentive, A, to influences coming towards you, okay, in which other people for their own agendas, even well-intended agendas, want you to be pressured, contracted, and driven about something to avoid it or approach it. Being aware of that and creating more buffers between you and them. Whoa, super helpful. Additionally, what do you do when someone you really care about is really caught up in something? They're upset about something, you know, and when we're upset, often we start moving into craving. You know, we want the source of the upset to change or go away, or we want a different result, or we want other people to come in and be helpful and you know, supportive and, and even agree with us that, oh yeah, that terrible thing happened. Okay, someone you care about is caught up in the moment in some kind of contracted, pressured drivenness, wanting, craving. How do you be with that? And for me, the art, a distinction, a both and, is to find compassion for them and be attentive to their needs and what are the longings under the surface that are in the mix here, while at the same time, not at the same time, preserving an inner independence. We talked about an inner liberation of the mind and heart that just isn't willing to be swept along with mm. the presumptions and the intensities and the ways of being. You could care about a result just as much as they care about, but you refuse to get caught up in that pressured, contracted drivenness that is so problematic. I love today's episode, which focused on, as I said in the intro, in my opinion, you know, January 10th as we're recording this, what's the real secret to happiness? Everyday happiness, normal happiness. We have constrained lives, circumstances are imperfect, what can we do anyways? And for most people, I think that that's two things. First, getting better at liking. And this means enjoying our experiences more, getting better at looking for experiences to enjoy finding the little parts of life that we really can feel as enjoyable for their own sake, and then working with inhibitions that people have, often, to different kinds of liking. And the second thing we can learn how to do is relax wanting. In the Buddhist tradition, this is talked about as craving, and it includes everything from addiction to jealousy to excessive comparison to little tendencies that we talked about during the episode about the brain looking for some slightly better version of the good experience that you're already having, or finding other ways to want something else even when life is pretty good around you right now. And those two tendencies that the brain has to not really enjoy things fully in the moment and to look constantly for new things to like are based on our underlying neurobiology. And we didn't talk too much about that during the episode itself, so here in the outro, I'm going to spend a little bit more time unpacking some of the basics of that. So in order to be able to tell what's going on out in the world, and therefore to make any sense of our experiences, of our senses, of how we feel, and also, importantly, to be able to survive, it needs to be able to sort different experiences into different buckets. And the three important categories are good, bad, and kind of indifferent or neutral. And this helps the brain make choices about what to approach and what to avoid. And it needs to make those choices in order to have you survive. 
But what makes something good or bad is actually really complicated, particularly in how the brain perceives it. And our experience of reward is broken up into two big parts, which get to liking and wanting. First, there's liking. And this is our experience of and reaction to pleasurable hedonic tone. And then second, there's wanting. And this is how salient an incentive is to our brain and how motivated we are to obtain it. Now, each of those things, liking and wanting, have related brain mechanisms associated with them. There are different places in the brain where these things are processed. And while there's a lot of overlap between those different areas in the brain, they're mechanically distinct. What this means is that it's totally possible for us to experience liking pleasurable hedonic tone without experiencing wanting and vice versa. And this gets to the example that Rick gave of the people on the slot machines at the beginning of the episode, where they're just pulling away at that slot machine. They want, they want, they want, but they're not actually enjoying the experience that much, or at least they don't seem to be while they're doing it. And if you're the kind of person who listens to a podcast like this, you've probably heard of the chemical dopamine. This is a really important neurotransmitter. It has a bunch of functions in the brain. And for a long time, dopamine was referred to as the pleasure chemical. So you might think of it as something that's really closely tied to liking. Liking is pleasure, right? But the thing is, dopamine is actually a lot more associated with wanting than it is with liking. So because I think this is really great, I'm going to actually read a section from some research that was done by Kent Barrage and Morden Kringlebach. Conversely, dopamine stimulations do not reliably cause pleasure. Dopamine elevations in NAC, this is a section of the brain, fail to enhance liking for sweetness, despite increasing motivational wanting to obtain the same rewards. The intensity of dopamine NAC surges, even when evoked by addictive drugs, correlates rather poorly with subjective liking ratings, but correlates much better with wanting ratings. And the difference between sections of the brain that are responsible for liking versus sections that are responsible for wanting and the tying of dopamine to wanting rather than liking helps explain why very high dopamine activities, like watching the news or scrolling on TikTok, can cause us to crave more of that activity in the future without actually enjoying it very much in the present. And that's really what we were focusing on today, how we have this whole category of experiences that have a lot of opportunity for liking in them, that for whatever reason, we just don't bother to fully like. We don't really take it in. We don't sit with it. We get hijacked by craving. All of this other stuff happens. And then there's this category of experiences that activate a ton of craving, but that we end up actually not really enjoying that much while we're doing them. The brain is built to want more of what it likes. When we have an enjoyable experience, we tip pretty quickly into craving more of it rather than just hanging out with the enjoyment that we're already feeling. As I said during the conversation, the brain has three real priorities. Survive to see tomorrow, conserve energy, pass on genes. That's what it cares about from an evolutionary perspective. Those things are great for survival, not so great for quality of life in the 21st century. And then we spent a lot of the episode talking on what we can do about this, how this tendency emerges in us in the moment, and what we can do to hang out more in enjoying without getting so hijacked by craving. 
And one way that we can really see the problems with craving in real time is looking at the gap between the story that our brain tells us about the way an experience is going to be versus the way that it actually is. And we had a really interesting section of the conversation that was about this during the episode where Rick was really investigating why I used to have this problem and still do from time to time with craving some slightly better version of an experience that I'm already having. And to use Rick's language, we have a kind of inner ad agency. The brain is selling us a story on how good something will be to motivate us to pursue it more. Maybe this is it telling you that that next beer is going to be the best beer ever. Maybe it's telling you that if you just keep on pushing to achieve this thing, then people will finally like you. Now, the problem is that, of course, an idealized experience, an idealized vision that the brain is selling us for how good something will be or can be, it's probably never actually going to be that good in real life. The version of the hamburger that they show you during the hamburger commercial is not actually what ends up coming in the bag. So what happens? We feel disappointed by the experience that we're given. We look for something a little bit better, and we tell ourselves, or at least I told myself in this case, hey, maybe next time. But guess what? Next time never comes. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow right? We're only ever experiencing today. The brain is constantly pushing the goalposts back on us. And this is only made worse by all of the many forces in society that are pushing us to want more without actually enjoying. Because craving is a great way to sell stuff. So, okay, a couple of practical pieces of advice that Rick gave. When you find yourself wrapped up in wanting, try to take a wider view. Try to see the whole of your experience without being so captured by any one part of it. Recognize what's also true for you. See all of the little pieces of the mosaic rather than the ones that the brain is focusing on right now. Second, satisfying our real needs, like the meaningful underlying needs that are driving us, is a great way to short-circuit craving. There are a lot of different ways in to meeting needs. And often what happens when we're in a craving cycle is we tell ourselves that there is only this one way to meet this need. And if I don't get that one perfect version of it, my need will never be met. And that's just not true. Most of the time we can find a lot of ways in to satisfy ourselves, ways that are often, again, tied to enjoyment. And when we get better at liking, when we get better at seeing all of the pieces of our experience, hanging out in enjoyable experiences while we're having them, finding more things to like, and liberating ourselves, frankly, becoming less inhibited about experiences of enjoyment, which, by the way, one of the things we talked about, huge inhibition around pleasure in our culture broadly. As we get better at really feeling good about the good stuff, this craving for other stuff tends to lighten up a little bit because we start to feel more and more satisfied by what's going on right here, right now. This is not a perfect solution unless you become an enlightened being in some kind of way, you know, unless you really get to the end of the road here, you are always going to be grappling with this throughout your life. Almost everybody is. Even when you think you've reconciled some of these issues, you will see craving and wanting and problematic forms of desire pop up in the brain. It's literally what it's built to do. It's not about not craving anymore. 
that's a target that's probably not reachable for most people. It's about seeing craving for what it is, getting less allied with it, and learning how to turn toward basic forms of finding the good in life, where you can and when you can. So I hope you liked today's episode. I hope you really enjoyed this one. I definitely did. If you've been enjoying the podcast for a little while and would like to support us, a couple different ways to do that. Best way, please subscribe if you're listening and you haven't subscribed yet. Also, you can tell a friend about it. That's the best way we have to reach new people. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find me on Substack. I'm writing over there these days. And you can also find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a couple of dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll get a bunch of bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.